a couple things before we get going. Uh, number one, uh, you probably heard my voice is kind of a little, like I'm here, but my voice is still struggling to be here. So uh, pray for me as I preach today. I preached last night and kind of, I only have one gear when I preach. I just kind of recognize that. If you haven't figured that out yet, I have one gear. And so uh, uh, you, we're, we're gonna do, we see what we can do today. Uh, but then also, how uh, many of you guys saw that at the end of this month, October 30th and 31st, we're gonna be celebrating 15 years as Journey Church. Come on, let's give it up for that. Be looking forward to that. It's gonna be a good time. All right, today we are in uh, continuing this series called Famous Last Words. And the title of the message is Choosing the Narrow Way. So let me ask all of us a question, and it may seem like a, you know, a ridiculous question because we're in church and you've, you've made the time to, to, to come here and to spend your time here and to, we've just gone through worship, but is there anyone here that wants to live a godly life? I mean, like, like there's a sincere desire of your heart. I want to live a godly life. Let me just get you on record, okay? I just want to, I'm just, I'm setting you up, okay? Just how many of you guys, I mean, if you want to live a godly life, I mean, there's not, that's not the wrong answer to keep your hand, I mean, it's, put your hand up, okay? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> we all want to live a godly life if you're, I, I think most of us do, okay? Now, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he, he tells us part of what it's like to live a godly life. So if you want to live a godly life, here is one of the keys to a godly life. Here it is, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Can I ask the question again? How many wants to live a godly life, right? And, and by the way, if you think you've been persecuted, you haven't probably. You probably have not been persecuted uh, at, the, at the level that Paul is talking here. And so what it, we have to wrestle with this. In fact, if I probably went to everybody's refrigerator, this is probably not the refrigerator verse that you have on your refrigerator. Like, I want to live a godly life and be persecuted. Yes, praise the Lord. It's probably not. Why? Because it's not a fun thing. That word persecuted means to be pressed. It means to be pursued, to be chased, to be hunted down. <laughs> Anybody want to live a godly life? This is what it's talking about. Uh, weeks ago, and here's why I'm preaching this. One, we're in this passage of scripture, but, but this is kind of my concern. A few weeks ago, I had somebody come up to me and they told me, they said, yeah, some friends and I were talking and we're kind of talking about the church in America and just wondering why, you know, the church doesn't seem to be very strong at times and doesn't seem to be, you know, it seems kind of weak at times. And uh, the conclusion that was being come up, that was coming up with there was that the church just emphasizes the love of God too much. And so they don't take a stand on sin. They don't take a stand up when we need to stand up. And it's just emphasizing the love of God too much. And they said, and, and this person said, what do you think? And I said, well, I disagree with that totally. I, I don't think that the church emphasizes the love of God too much. In fact, if you just look around, we could probably love a little bit more, right? What I think, why I think that the church is weak and why the church is having trouble and why the church isn't making a difference at times it's not because the church is too loving, but it's because the church is too consumeristic. Okay, I'm gonna need you guys to help me preach because I don't have much of a voice, and even if you hate this sermon, pretend like you like this sermon just to make me feel better, okay? Thank you. I'm gonna need some help. I, I really believe that the reason why we don't make a difference at times is not because we just love so much. It's because we're too consumeristic and too many Christians have built God into the convenient places of their life, but not the core places of their life. Come on, if you just build God into the convenient places of your life, it's easy when pressure comes to not have to lean on truth, but you lean on what's convenient instead of putting God in the core places of your life. When God is in the core places of your life, when trouble comes, you gotta have different solutions, right? And so too many times we've built them into convenient places, but not the core places. We seek after things that entertain and enrich us about God, but don't confront us about God. And so we seek places, we seek messages, we seek churches, we seek environments that just entertain and enrich us instead of cost us something. 
Let me tell you, there's going to be a cost to following God. And if you want to live a godly life, there are going to be times when there's going to be some pressure. There's going to be some, what feels like being chased down or hunted or being pursued. And I heard from a pastor a long time ago, he was talking to a group of pastors. And he was saying, hey pastors, what you do to get people, you're going to have to find out that you end up having to do to keep people. So if you entertain people to get people to come to church, you're going to have to keep entertaining people to keep them at church. So what happens? We create environments where we're trying to entertain people to come to church. And listen, I'm all about whatever we can do to get people to church. But listen, if, if that's the reason why we get people to church, we're going to have to keep entertaining people to keep them at church. Let me say it this way. If I can bribe you to come to church, Satan can bribe you to leave the church. So we have to make some decisions. What are we going to do? And listen, if you're coming to church to improve your life, that's a great place to start, but you can't stay there. You can't just come to church to improve your life. At some point, you have to make a decision that I've come to church, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm just going to follow Jesus no matter where Jesus is. You know, uh, this is called choosing the narrow way. Because in the book of Acts, when the early Christians were uh, labeled, they just kind of labeled it the way. Like this, you know, you, you have the, the Mandalorian. This is the way. This was the way. This was the way. And Jesus said, yeah, it is a way. But it's a narrow way. And there are few people who find it. So there is a way. There is a narrow way. And it's simply called the narrow way. And it's, how you guys know, it's narrow because it's not the comfortable things that make you grow but it's the difficult things that make you grow, right? I mean, you can sit there and sit on your couch and eat Twinkies and you're gonna grow, but you're gonna grow soft, right? You're not gonna grow strong. <laughs> it's the reps in the gym that make you strong. It's the, it's the strength train. It's the resistance that makes you stronger. And so he says, if you wanna live a godly life, there's gonna be some persecution. So the question is, what do you do when the persecution comes? So let's see what kind of persecution he was talking about Let's go back, rewind the tape here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. He says, you, however, he's talking to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He's saying, Timothy, you've watched it all. You've watched my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me. And then he lists these three places that the sufferings happened. In Antioch, in Iconium, and Lystra. He said, which persecutions I endured, yet from them the Lord from all, them all, the Lord rescued me. Now, he's referring back to his first missionary journey found in Acts chapter 13 and 14. I encourage you to go back and read it. You can see it all in detail where he went to these three cities. What's interesting about this is that Paul did not know Timothy while he was going through these persecutions. Timothy is from the city of Lystra. And so Timothy, what he's saying here is probably from the very earliest that you heard of me, Timothy, from the very, before we even knew of each other, you had heard of my reputation. And from that point on, you have seen what I've gone through. So let's get a little history of this city, Lystra, and let's get a history of what happened there. And to do that, I'm going to enlist a video to help give us some history, some background, something very interesting happened to Paul in this city. Let's watch. Today, the ruins of ancient Lystra are here near the modern village of Hatun Saray. A portion of Lystra seems to have been found on that hill because that's where they found a number of ruins and inscriptions. It's likely that that was the Acropolis of ancient Lystra, which covered about 16 acres. Although the site at Lystra has yet to be excavated, this massive stone altar dating back to the second century AD was discovered in 1885 and it contains a Latin inscription, including the name of the city, Lystra. Not far from the Acropolis of ancient Lystra is the city of Gokirt. Many associate Gokirt with the biblical region of Lystra that Paul journeyed to in Acts. Scattered throughout modern Gokirt are the remains of ancient Calistra. This awesome settlement was carved into the rocks and dates before and after Lystra. During the Byzantine era, its network of houses, caves, and underground churches helped protect Christianity in this region. 
To find the ancient ruins of Klistra, you have to look carefully here in this village of Gokirt. The builders of these rock dwellings were masters of camouflage, and some entrances are still well hidden. Even today, many of these secret rooms have been adopted by local villagers and used as stores, warehouses, barns, and unfortunately, garbage dumps. For centuries, this has been the traditional site that locals have associated with Paul's visits to Lystra and the region. It was at Lystra that Paul performed one of the most astounding miracles recorded in Acts, healing a beggar crippled since birth. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes. Acts 14, 8 through 12. The miracle convinced the locals here in Lystra that the two missionaries were the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes, who, according to local legend, had visited the area as men before. To prevent the people from honoring them with sacrifices, Paul and Barnabas cried out in protest, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Acts 14, 15. Acts chapter 14 tells us that a short time later, Jewish opponents from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium arrived here in Lystra. Once again, they won the crowd over and incited them against Paul and Barnabas. They even stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But Acts tells us that Paul survived. And the very next day, Paul and Barnabas fled for the city of Durban. Paul went and he was persecuted at each one of those cities. And then he gets there to the last one and he heals somebody through the power of God and they want to make them into gods. How many of you guys know they could have probably milked that for a while and done pretty good and had a pretty good life, right? I mean, if people are going around treating you as gods, why is this important? This is important because I'm going to give you three, three questions. Number one is this. Will I choose the way of Jesus when it's harder, not better? You see, they, they had served God through pain and through difficulty and they got to a point where their serving God actually got them to a point where they were in, they could choose something that would be an amazing life. They could choose something that would just be off the charts amazing. And Paul doesn't choose that life that, uh, uh, did you hear what happened? He served God to a place where he was going to be treated like a God. And he decided that wasn't the way. Will we serve Jesus? Will we choose Jesus when it's harder, not better? They tried to make him God's, and, and he chooses not to. They chose the harder way. How many times do we serve God until he gets us something that we want, and then we try to move on without God? How many times do we serve God to a better place in life, and then we go on autopilot with God? How many times do we serve God till he gives us what we want, and then we stop listening? But Paul says, no, I'm going to follow Jesus when it's harder. Will you choose Jesus, listen, when life looks better without Jesus? Because I'm telling you, there are going to be times in your life when you're following Jesus, when life will look better for you to not follow Jesus. And if you have just been living a Christian life that it always looks better to follow Jesus, can I just suggest at some point you might not have been following I know that runs counter to everything that we hear in modern messages today. But there are going to be times in your life when following Jesus is harder, not better. When following Jesus doesn't seem to make sense. When following Jesus seems like it's going to get harder. 
Now, the interesting thing about Paul is not only does he turn it down and they end up stoning him because <laughs> all the other people from the other towns come back and incite a riot against him, but even after he was left for dead and stoned, he gets back up and he goes back to all those other cities to see how people are doing. How many of you guys know that's choosing harder, not better, right? And I'm afraid that in our consumeristic church culture, there are too many people who, if you were offered an opportunity to live as a God, you would be just fine with that. We would just be just fine with that. Because that seems to be the ultimate goal of following Jesus for some people. Now listen, I was part of a, a church for a while, and sometimes it wouldn't be said this way, but sometimes this is how people took it. That God always wants you to have a better life. That God always wants you to have a bigger business. That God always wants you to prosper. That God always wants you. And listen, I understand there's a place for that. There is a treasure chest of blessings of following Jesus. There's the grace of God. Yeah, I believe there's even provisions and blessings in God. But there's also, over on this side, there's this sacrifice of following Jesus that requires a cross. And so many of us just camp over here in the blessings of following Jesus. But listen, there's a tension in the treasure chest and the cross. There's a tension that we live in. And too many of us have just camped over here and we think following Jesus is all about the treasure chest and it's all about following after these things. It's all about all of these things over here. There, there was a Jeep commercial that just stuck with me a long time ago. It was 2011. Some of you guys might remember this. They had this whole commercial and at the end of it, the tagline was this, the things, that make, the things we make make us. How many of you guys remember that? Some of you guys might remember that. The, what they were saying is that literally the things that we make make who we are. And they knew their audience. They knew exactly who they were talking to. They're talking to a society that actually down deep believes that, that our job, our career actually make who we are, that our, the house we live in, that's kind of makes who we are, that the car we drive kind of makes us who we are. And so even as believers, we pursue a life of, of this treasure chest of blessings that just tries to make who we are, this status, this climbing up a ladder of whatever. But can I just tell you that anything that creates distance between you and God is not of God? Come on, I, I needed you guys to help me preach there, okay? Because I only got so much voice, and so you guys are gonna have to fill in the gaps. But listen, if any fame creates distance between you and God, it's not of God, or you're misusing it. Any, any job, any business that creates a distance between you and God, any ministry that creates a distance between you and God, and yes, it can. Paul just demonstrated how even following in the ministry, there can be opportunities where all of a sudden you can take off ramps that actually create distance rather than close the distance. Anything in life, any opportunities that create distance, any activity in your life, any relationship that creates distance, any sin, any shame, anything that creates distance between you and God is not of God or you're misusing it. So how many times do we serve God to go to a better place and then we go on autopilot? Again, anybody want to live a godly life? <laughs> do we still have any takers for that? Pastor Brady Boyd said it this way. He said this not too long ago. He said, I'll put it up on the screen. He says, Jesus did not speak English, was never married, had no children, did not own a home and died an early death. He was abandoned by his closest friends. In other words, very little, but, uh, very little about his life measures up to our ideas of success. Maybe we are the ones that need to redefine success. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with stuff, but there is something wrong when we think that's what it means to follow Jesus. When we've somehow wrapped it all up together. So that every time we Listen, there are times when you need to let go of something and you need to say God is good. Because here's what I say. Anytime, here's what I think. Anytime somebody gets something, has something, moves forward in something, we say God is good. Put that as the tagline. God is good. Anything that we define as success, God is good. Listen, there's sometimes when you need to let go of something and you ought to be able to say just as convincingly God is good. Because I needed to let that go. God is good. I needed to let that go. We, don't follow, we, we follow Jesus not because it's better. We follow Jesus because he's Jesus. That's it. 
We follow him because he's God. Because he's Jesus. He rose from the dead. He came in the flesh. He rose from the dead. So let me just say it this way. You'll hear this a couple times today. Jesus isn't calling us to pursue a better life. He's calling us to pursue a bigger life. It's not just a better life. It's a bigger life. It's one that's outside of us. It's one that's bigger than us. It's one that's bigger than any one of us can be contained in. It's one that's bigger than any of our timelines. It's one that's bigger than any of our career paths. It's one that's bigger than anything that is contained in one person. It's bigger than us. And if you want to live a godly life, there are going to be times when you're going to have the pressure. There's times when there's going to be persecution. So what do you do in those times? Let's continue reading 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. He says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, and he's talking to Timothy, but he's also talking to all of us. He says, you continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. What's he talking about? He's actually talking about the scriptures, okay? He said, from a very young age, you saw my persecution but you also had the scriptures. Remember in, in earlier in the book where he talks about his grandmother and his mother, they, they taught him the ways of, of God and they taught him the scriptures from an early age, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is that in times of pressure, you have to go back to the things to the word of God. You have to go back to the thing that we know is, is sure, and there's time, there are times in your life when you're going to have to make tough decisions based on what God has said in his word. There are times in your life when you're going to have to make tough decisions that are going to cost you compared to what everyone else would say. But the question is, he's talking about scriptures here. The question is, can we actually trust this? I mean, this was like written hundreds and hundreds and a couple thousand years ago and thousands of years ago. Written you know, by people from all different backgrounds and, and all came together in this book. I mean, how do we know that this is even, that, that we have what was actually written? How do we even know that? How do we, because if, if people just kind of changed it along the way, why, why would we build our life on that? So I want to establish first that this is trustworthy. This is trustworthy. And, and I, the only video I could find was a cartoon. So you're stuck with it, but here it is. The Word. You've known of it your entire life. A book that sits on your shelf, sometimes granting wisdom and sometimes gathering dust. But can you trust what you have is actually accurate? You're talking about a book written thousands of years ago, before computers or printing presses. How can you be sure you have the words God wants you to have? Many respected ancient writings were only loosely based on facts, with the historical writers often getting key dates and locations absolutely wrong. That's because many of the writers did not live in the countries they were writing about. Some weren't even living at the time of the events they recorded. Not so with the Bible. Scripture was recorded by those who lived in that time and experienced what they recorded firsthand. Moses, for example, was there when God gave the Ten Commandments. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were there and experienced the life of Jesus. So there is no doubt that what was written down was historically accurate because those who wrote it lived there at the time. But what about the handwritten copies that came later? Doesn't it seem that over time as one writer copied the word for future generations, that words and potentially entire passages would get rephrased and perhaps even omitted? How do you know the Bible you read is the Bible that was originally written? Wait! To answer that, you must go back to the way scripture was hand-copied into manuscripts. For centuries, three groups of people took the care of the Old Testament scriptures as seriously as life and death. They had strange names like Sopharim and Masoretes, and they were obsessed with the intricate minutiae, requiring a system of double checks and triple checks to ensure extreme accuracy in any reproduced copy of scripture. If one mistake, even one letter, was found to be inaccurate, the entire copy was destroyed. So you can be confident that copies were made accurately. But how do these ancient manuscripts compare to the printed Bible we have today? In early 1947, a goat got himself lost in the caves off the coast of the Dead Sea. 
A young boy searching for the goat found jars filled with ancient Old Testament manuscripts. Scholars confirmed that when these earlier Old Testament manuscripts dated 125 BC were compared to later manuscripts dated 916 AD, the Dead Sea Scrolls were identical, word for word, in more than 95% of the text. The variation of 5% pertained almost exclusively to spelling variations. In other words, in over a thousand years, the only changes were in spelling and did not affect in any manner the meaning and intent of those scriptures. But what about the New Testament? Well, scholars evaluate the reliability of ancient literature by two standards. One, the time interval between the original and the earliest copies. And two, how many manuscripts are available. For instance, scholars deem Homer's Iliad of utmost accuracy because the time gap between the original and the earliest copies is a mere 400 years, and there are 643 copies in existence. In the same manner, Caesar's Gallic Wars is considered accurate even though its time span is a thousand years with only 10 copies. The New Testament, on the other hand, has no equal in these two criteria no historic writings even begin to come close. The span between the writing of the Bible and the earliest copy is only 50 years, and nearly 25,000 manuscripts survive to this day. Take that, Homer and Caesar. But why? Why is this accuracy so important? Because, in effect, it means God is saying, I protected my written word to you all these years so that you could hold it in your hand, read it, and know that it is an accurate revelation of me. I want you to know me and my ways, so I have given you my reliable word. And that is the final word. All right, so is that convincing enough that we have something that is accurate, okay? We have something that's faithful. It's a faithful copy. <clears throat> So we, we have to ask the question, will I choose Jesus when it's harder, not better? Here, here's the, the next question. Will I choose the word of God when it hurts, not just when it seems to help? Because again, I, I believe some of us, we go to the word of God for comfort, and there's definitely comfort in the word of God. We go into the word of God for leader, you know, to lead us, and there's definitely a, a way to be led through the word of God. But do we go when it hurts. Let me explain. There's a famous parable in scripture that many of you guys have probably heard about. It's called the parable of the sower. And Jesus uses this example of a farmer that goes out to sow seed. And the seed is representing the word of God planted in somebody's life or somebody's heart. And he uses this illustration, Matthew chapter five, or chapter 13, verse five. And he, he loved to tell these stories that had a, a, another meaning to it. It says, some fell on stony places, talking about the word, where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprung up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched and they had no root and so they withered away. He's talking about what happens sometimes when the word of God is preached or spoken or read and it gets placed in somebody's life, but there's not much depth there. It, it gets taken very quickly. And they had no root and it withered away. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground, yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's deal with the, the stony ground here just for a second. Because Jesus explains what he meant later on in this chapter in verse 20. He says, but he who received on the seed on stony places, he's, he's given us the explanation. He says, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So it'd be like you heard a podcast or you read the Bible or you heard a message preached and man, something happened on the inside of you. I mean, there was joy on the inside of you because you were excited about hearing the word of God. Yet he has no root in himself. And it endures only for a little bit. Because here it is, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Here's that word persecution or pressure again. Right, that, that word pressure and, and that tribulation how many of you guys were here a couple weeks ago when I talked about my friend Croc? Anybody guys remember my friend Croc? We were, together we made up the total low brass section of the high, high school. I was a trombone player, he was the tuba player. We played La Bamba to any music that was set in front of us. That was our deal. Well, 
He was the biggest guy in class. I made friends with him because I was one of the smaller guys in class. And, and so eventually, as I was hanging around with him, I began to share Jesus with him. And he began to get excited. He started to come to church. He started to come to youth group. He started to get excited about God. He started to, to get a, a Bible, started to carry that around. He, he was going to lead. He started to lead like our see you at the pole, which is where everybody gathers around the pole at school. And people start, I mean, he was so on fire for God that he was, people were starting to call him Rev as a nickname because everywhere he went, he was just talking about God. But somewhere along the way, it just, it's like, it's like right here, what happened is he received the word but it didn't stick with him. It didn't stick with him. And we're going to find out why that happened a little while later. But years later, I was a youth pastor at a church, and, and I hadn't seen Croc for years. And all of a sudden, he came to the church, and he asked to see me. And he, he began to explain his whole situation. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm down on my luck. I have all these financial problems and all this type of stuff, and I just wondered if the church could help. And, and he explained his whole situation, and I knew from his particular situation that our policies at the church wouldn't be able to just give him money to try to fix his situation. But here he is. I mean, here's my old friend in front of me, and, and we didn't have any money at the time. We were living off of nothing. And, but I always kept this $100 bill in my wallet. And it was like this faith thing. Like, I, it didn't belong there because we needed to use it for other things, but I just kept it there as a faith thing. Like, God, you are my provider. And I just, like a point of faith. And so I knew that the church couldn't help him, but I was like, I'm just gonna give him all I've got. And so I gave him my $100 bill. And I said, Croc, this is all I've got, but I, I feel like you're supposed to have it because I wanna help you out. So he left, and, and later on I found out that he was going around to different people and other people in my family, and he was conning us all out of money. He even conned his own mother and wrote bad checks, ended up in jail, I believe, all sorts of stuff. And I was like, God, what happened with him? And I don't know where, what's, where he's at today, but I said, God, what, what happened? And it, it was this scripture. He received the word, and immediately there was joy, but there was no root in him. Something happened. So what happened? Let's, let's look at what happened and what can happen in us. That word uh, tribulation is a Greek word that can mean, here it is again, pressure. Sometimes it's translated as trouble. How many of you guys know what it feels like to be in trouble? Let me just take you back to your childhood. How many of you guys know you did something wrong and you felt that sinking feeling of, oh, crud, I am in trouble? We got a kid here that knows exactly. I don't know what happened today, but hopefully it turns out well for you at the end of this day, but... But I remember even as a teenager, I was dating Becca, and uh, she lived like an hour away from where I was at, and I had a curfew. And so, I, so one night, I was sit, we were sitting there watching, I, I'm, I'm as honest to God, we were watching Looney Tunes on the television, sitting on the couch, I fall asleep. I wake up, and it's like three or four in the morning. And I'm like, oh, crud. I have never, I never snuck out of my house, but I was praying the whole way, God, let me sneak into the house without anybody noticing. So I'm driving the whole time like, oh, golly, I can't believe. And so my, if you know my dad, my dad wakes up at like 3 a.m. in the morning. Like even now, he wakes up at 3 a.m. And so I'm just praying. I'm like, okay, I just pray that I can just somehow get in. So I pull in as my dad is already up and ready, getting ready for work. But what's worse is my mom stayed up all night waiting for me. If my mom was ever demon-possessed, it was this moment. <laughs> the look in her eyes towards me when I showed up and she'd been waiting all night. I just knew I was in trouble, okay? So we all know what it feels like to be in trouble. We all know what pressure is, too. We know pressure, deadlines from work, you know? Pressure from family and friends, uh, you know, kids, responsibilities, uh, all of these things, paying the bills, life's full. I mean, he goes, no, life's full of pressure. But here's, here's the twist. This scripture, when it talks about trouble and when it talks about pressure, it is not talking about that type of trouble or that type of pressure in life. It, what it's not saying is that, hey, you have the word of God planted in you and then trouble comes and you, you didn't have enough root to withstand the trouble and so you fall away. It's not saying that when you, you, know, you get the word of God and then pressure comes in life and you didn't have enough root and so you fall away. That's not what it's saying. Let, let's read it again and we'll see exactly what it is saying. Matthew chapter 13, verse 21, it says, yet he has no root in himself, he endures only for a while for when tribulation and persecution arises, watch this, 
because of the word. What he's saying is that when people fall away like this, they don't fall away because of trouble or pressure in life. They fall away because they have trouble and they get pressured by what the word of God says for them to do. And they get offended by the word of God. And this is where I believe a lot of us are at. A lot of us, we hear the word of God and we receive it with joy until we hear a part that we don't like, until we hear a part that we have trouble with, until we hear a part that puts pressure on us to live a different way. And then because there's no root and because we're immature, we fall away, we step back. Is anybody still here? I'm just making sure. And I just preached auditorium too for a minute, okay? This is what it's like. So let me give you an example of what I believe happens many times when, and I'm talking about us. This happens to us. When we're reading the word of God many times today, this is what happens. Let me illustrate it because I was walking around this week and I just kind of had this picture in my mind. So here it is. Let's illustrate it. Okay, so here's an example of what kind of happens sometimes when we're looking at the Word of God. And sometimes we, uh, I was walking around this week and I saw all these doors here. And this kind of represents the Word of God. Like there's a lot of places in the Word of God. There's, there's things about the grace of God. That's one room to go in. There's things about the love of God. There's things about how to, how to parent, how to be a good steward. All of these things are found in the Word of God. And typically what a lot of people do is we end up just finding one door to go into, a door that we like. The grace of God is an awesome door to be in. But it's not all that's in the Word of God. I mean, things about parenting, things about being a good spouse, those things are in the Word of God. But that's not all that's in the Word of God. And so a lot of us tend to hang out in these doors and we won't go outside of them because we'll get offended. So 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16, one of the most famous uh, passages about the word of God in scripture says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So uh, a lot of us, we love the word of God, but I want you to think about what the word of God is saying it's used for. It's used for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. So do we choose the word of God when it's teaching us instead of just confirming what we already think? Are we choosing the word of God when it's reproving us, not just refreshing us? Are, are we choosing the word of God when it's correcting us, not just comforting us? Are we choosing the word of God when it's training me, when it's training us, not just affirming us? See, the word of God is bigger than any one single door. And we have to understand that. Will we choose the word of God when it seems to be hurting sometimes rather than always what we think is helping us? You see, we don't, it's not a question of do we trust God's word. The question is, are we going to trust all of God's word? See, a lot of us, we find the door that we like. But the word of God is all, all scripture is God breathed, all of it. So a lot of times we don't need more knowledge. What we really need is more application of all of the word of God. So some of these scriptures sometimes we'll avoid are things like Matthew chapter five, verse 43 and 44 it says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. A lot of us won't go in that door. Why? Because it's hard. Why? Because it doesn't always feel helpful to us. Why? Because sometimes it hurts to go through that door. How about, let's keep going in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. Sometimes we won't go into that particular door in the word of God. Why? Because it seems to hurt if God's asking us to lay some something down. All right, continue in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. How about this one? Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. A lot of us won't go through that particular door because it sometimes feels helpful to us to worry. And so we don't want to go into a door in the word of God that seems to hurt us or challenge us or confront us. Uh, how about the very next verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1? Judge not that you 
not be judged. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Come on, not many people are going through the deny himself door in the scriptures. Why? Because it hurts sometimes to do that and take up his cross and follow me. First Peter chapter five, verse six says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Why don't we go through the door of humility? Because it seems to hurt sometimes more than it seems to help. So the, the question is, not do we trust the word of God, but do we trust all of the word of God? And are we going to choose the word of God even when it seems to hurt rather than to help? See, most of us choose scriptures or choose a door to walk into that's going to comfort us rather than confront us. But there are times when we need to be confronted by the word of God. See, you don't just read the word of God. You have to let the word of God read you and see what's on the inside. Why? Because Jesus isn't just telling us to pursue a better life. We have to pursue a bigger life found in the kingdom of God. All right, so what, what doors do you tend to hang out in? What, what rooms do you tend to, to, to kind of to plant yourself in? The question is, do we believe all the word of God? Are we going to follow all the word of God? Not just pick and choose what we like, but we're gonna follow the whole word of God. All right, let's wrap this up. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. What's the point of the pressure? What's the point? If you wanna live a godly life, you're gonna have some persecution, you're gonna have some pressure. We need to stand on the word of God. We need to stand on all the word of God. We need to choose the word of God no matter what. What's the point of all of this? So that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. How many of you guys know that God has a plan for your life? He has something for you to do. He has a purpose for your life. He wants you, he has a purpose. He has a work for you to do. And in order to be equipped and prepared for that work, you're going to have to be, you're gonna have to have a time of surrender. There may be a time of pressure where some things get worked out of you. There's gonna be some times when you have to surrender to the word of God and not just what you like. So that leads us to this final question and it's this. Will I choose then to step into temporary pain for an eternal purpose? Am I willing to endure what Paul is talking about? Do I really want to live a godly life? Do I really want to be equipped for every good work? Because if you really want to live a godly life and, have it and be equipped, there's probably going to be some temporary pain. How many of you guys have heard this term, the ROI, the return on investment? And you guys, you make an investment, like, what's the return on my investment? Listen, when you're following Jesus, there are some times when the ROI does not happen in this life. The ROI happens in eternity. And I, and I think so many people are, we're evaluating our participation based on how much harvest we will see right now with our eyes. We're evaluating, am I gonna get involved in God's plan based on how much I will see in the here and now? And there's sometimes in the kingdom of God that you have to step into temporary pain because there's an eternal purpose. You have to step into a temporary pain because there's something bigger, not just now and better. I shared this guy with you guys like a few months ago, but a few months ago I was wrestling with this question. I was like, I mean, it was, it was a painful year, you know, in 2020 and kind of evaluating. And I was like, God, am I even making a difference? How many of you guys have ever been there before? You're like, you're starting a business and you're like, am I even making any progress here? Or you're, you're raising kids. You're like, am I making any difference here? And I was just, just thinking through, you know, pastoring this church and doing all, and it's like, you know, we're coming up on 15 years. I'm like, am I even making a difference? And I was just kind of yelling that out to God. And like, I look around and it sure doesn't look like it. Like how many of you guys know you can get to that point, right? Where all you see is what the enemy wants you to see, right? And if I looked around, I could probably give you some stats and say, you know what? Yeah, it probably does. you're probably not making that much of a difference. And I, could, I had myself convinced of that. I said, God, am I making a difference? And if I'm not making a difference, why am I giving my life to this? And God kind of, I feel God like tap me on the shoulder. You ever have a God tap you on the shoulder, so to speak? Like, um, hey, wait a minute, uh, I just hate to interrupt here, but, uh, and I had one of those moments where God tapped me on the shoulder, and he's like, uh, Sean, you're asking the wrong question. I'm like, well, God, making a difference seems like a great question to ask. He's like, you're asking the wrong question. The, the, the right question, the wrong question is, like, am I making a difference? The right question you should be asking is this, am I being obedient 
And as I sat there and I prayed about it, I said, yeah, God, I am being obedient, but I don't feel like I'm making a difference still. <laughs> and, he, and he spoke to me, he said, well, the world is filled, history is filled of people who, if they were to try to measure their difference making in the moment, they would have fallen short. And only decades later, or maybe a lifetime later, or centuries later, it was proved that they had made a difference all along. The question isn't, are you making the difference? The question is, are you being obedient? And the question, that's what I pose to all of us today. Will we choose to step into temporary pain, even if we can't see the difference that we're making right now? Will we choose to step into that temporary pain for a bigger purpose? I'm gonna have the worship team come back up, and as, as they do, I'm gonna just remind you of last week's message. How many of you guys were here for last week's message, Jimmy Evans? Remember at the point when he said that they assume, the, one of the reasons why their church grows is because they assume that they're the only church in town. You guys remember that? That they act like they're the only church in town, which seems kind of like arrogant at a certain level. You're like, really, that something doesn't seem right. I mean, we're the body of Christ. And, and, uh, but he, he said that in a way that wasn't an unhealthy way. He said, because if you remember, he said, how do you starve a dog? He said, you, you have three people feed the dog because everyone is assuming that someone else is feeding the dog. And so they said that the reason why they assume they're the only church in town is because they're gonna assume and act like, and it motivates them that what if we were the only church in town? What if we were the only ones here? We're not gonna assume that anyone else is reaching people for Jesus. We're not gonna assume, we're gonna act like we're the only ones and it's gonna motivate us to reach people for Jesus. And we're kind of adopting that as Journey Church. I mean, we're part of the bigger, you know, church here in town, and, we, and I have friends across this city, okay? So I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything unhealthy. But I'm saying what this does is this allows us to assume, like, what if no one else was reaching somebody for Jesus in this town? What would Journey Church do? Well, we're going to get after it. We're going to get after it. But let me bring it down to a personal level. What if you were the only Christian in this city? What if you were the only follower of Jesus? What would you do? Just imagine that for just a moment. No one that you know follows Jesus. You're the only one. What kind of life would you live? Let me ask it in a different way. Would it be the same life you're living now? Or might there be some things that we need to step into that might be painful, but have an eternal purpose? You see, I think so many of us are starving the dog. Because we're just assuming because I'm a part of a church, well, we must be reaching people for Jesus. We must be doing something. Some of us are starving the dog because we just assume that we live in a Christian culture. That's, that's false, by the way. That, that moment has kind of passed if you haven't been paying attention. But what would you do if you were the only person? I just have a suspicion. I, I, I know this because I've evaluated this and it's been challenging to me. But I'd probably, I'd probably lay aside some weights I'd probably share my faith more. I'd probably dig into the word more. I'd probably be less about pursuing all the treasure chests of blessings that I can have for my own life. And I'd probably start looking at people with the heart of God. That's what this message is about. That's what this message is about. Because some of us are just a few painful decisions away from a godly life. Few pain points of stepping into that temporary pain from a godly life. Because Jesus isn't calling us to pursue a better life, but he's calling us to pursue a bigger life. Would you guys stand up with me and we're getting ready to worship? There's, there's something that I tell people in times of tragedy because it's so true and I've witnessed it so many times. In times of tragedy, people do one of two things. They either lean into Jesus or they pull away from God altogether in times of tragedy. And you have a choice which one you do. And I've seen it time and time and time again. The same thing happens in times of pressure. And the reason I preach a message like this is because I believe that what we need in the church today 
is, is not more consumeristic pursuit of things that entertain us and even things that enrich us, but we need an army of people who are battle ready for the pressure that might come, that are gonna stand the test of time, that are gonna stand on this word of God, no matter what culture does. That there's gonna be a church in this city that's going to be a light, that's gonna be faithful, true witness. That we're gonna build an army of people who are ready to give their lives for the cause of Christ. And that's my job, is to get us ready for that. That's my job. Your job is to respond when you hear the word and to be good soil. Your job is to decide what are you gonna do? Are you gonna lean into Jesus in tough times? Because again, I don't think we've seen all that we're gonna see, but we need to prepare our hearts to be standing on the rock no matter what comes our way. That at the end of the day, if, if the storm comes or if the wind blows, no matter what happens in our life, that we're gonna be standing on the rock of Jesus. So God, we thank you so much that you love us so much where we are, but you love us so much you won't leave us where we are and you're calling us to a deeper place. So Lord, we, we acknowledge that. And guys, here, here's what we like to do a, a lot of times. We just like to ask this question and I'm gonna challenge you to ask this question. Jesus, what are you saying to me today? Just go ahead and ask him right now. Jesus, what are you saying to me today? And listen, whatever, whatever he speaks to you, don't talk, your, don't talk yourself out of it. No matter how painful it might seem, don't, don't talk yourself out of it. Jesus, we come before you and we say we're willing to trust all of the word of God. We come before you and we follow you, not because it's always gonna be better, but because you're Jesus. And God, we say we wanna be people who live a godly life that's found on the foundation of scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and what you've done on the cross for us, that you died for our sins, you took our place, you rose from the dead and you give us life. You've empowered us to live a life of freedom, of power, come what may. And Lord, we thank you for that and we worship you because of that in Jesus' name. Let's worship one more time.